and welcome to this episode of The Art and Design of Sci-Fi and Fantasy, Mystery and Horror. Today I speak with uh, author Joe Haldeman. Uh, he's written Forever War um, and numerous other pieces, um, short stories, novels, um, at least one TV episode. And uh, yeah, we talk a lot about um, his experiences in Vietnam and um, connect those to a bit to Forever War. Then we talk about um, his approach to writing, uh, his experiences as a writer over the decades, and uh, just his thoughts, his inspirations, the things he likes. So very interesting um, conversation. So thank you and enjoy. I'm speaking with author Joe Haldeman, author of Forever War and a great deal number of other uh, books and, and writings. Um, thank you for speaking with me. Always glad to, Chris. Thanks. So, um, first, let's start at the beginning. How did you get into writing um, science fiction? Well, it's what I always read, actually. I, the first things I wrote were science fiction, and uh, I didn't actually write other things until after I'd been published. Mm -hmm. um, did you, I guess you're a fan of all the old uh, classics and that sort of thing. What was your, um, who were your uh, go-to authors? When I was a kid, I really loved uh, Heinlein and, of course, Clark and Asimov mm -hmm. and Bradbury in those days, yeah. Okay. I guess let's talk about The Forever War since that's the one we're promoting, though you've written so much since, but th but that's the focus of this interview. Um, right. Can we talk about the genesis of that? Where did that idea come from? Well, it was uh, a pretty obvious thing. I mean, everybody who's been a soldier writes a war novel. Mm-hmm. And having been a science fiction reader all my life, it was logical for me to write a science fiction war novel. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So were you um, trying to become a writer before you went to war, or did it uh, happen after you returned, or how did that work? I did write uh, some before I was drafted. Yeah, I, I always wanted to be a writer. Mm -hmm. And uh, I wrote a couple of stories before I went off to Vietnam. Mm-hmm. Did you think uh, when you got drafted, I assume you got drafted, you didn't volunteer. Yeah. Um, did you think, well, here's so here's something, I'm going to have ideas for a novel out of this experience. Do you try to d put a silver lining on it? or? Yeah, in fact, I, I suppose when I went off to basic training, that was in my head. Mm -hmm. that, uh, obviously, this was going to be my big uh, piece of experience in, in the real world, so to speak. Mm -hmm. Were you scared? Yeah, everybody was scared. I mean, it was a very, it was a pretty serious, vicious war. Mm -hmm. And uh, there was no, uh, I don't know, I mean, the stories I'd heard didn't make it sound like it was going to be a lot of fun. Mm -hmm. It was, a, I recall... I think that some people were really looking forward to it, and the, most of us thought they were really crazy. Mm -hmm. <laughs> because who wants to do that? I mean, most of us didn't have very much patriotism, mm -hmm. and uh, American presence in Vietnam was uh, not not very good, possibly even illegal. Mm -hmm. So, did you have a choice in what you did in the military, or were you just given given a job? Oh yeah, I mean, I was I was drafted. You don't get to choose anything. Mm -hmm. Oh, well, I should say that they told me I could. Mm -hmm. uh, 
they said, well, you know, choose whatever you want to do. And I said, well, I want to be a scientific assistant. Mm-hmm. So I that on the list. Mm-hmm. And uh, I didn't get that. <laughs> oh. <laughs> um, what, what did you end up doing? I was a combat engineer. Uh, the subclassification is uh, pioneer. Mm-hmm. It's basically a demolition uh, engineer who goes around with uh, uh, lumberjack tools and cut down trees and blow up holes and mm-hmm. look for mines, things like that. Was there any part of it you enjoyed or was it just... Well, you know, I enjoyed, I've always enjoyed camping mm-hmm. and that aspect of it was camping with a real vengeance because, I mean, you didn't have any choice. We didn't go into any towns or cities. Mm-hmm. It was all living out in the woods and uh, carving out how much comfort you could find when you're camping in the woods with people shooting at you. Mm-hmm. And the jungle in Vietnam, the Central Highlands, it was especially a very thick uh, rainforest. And that was beautiful. It was a wonderful environment for somebody who loves nature. Mm-hmm. However, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was kind of populated by people who wanted to kill you, so that was not so much fun. Did you come across any um any strange if you're if you're out there forward in the jungle, did you come across any strange animals or insects or reptiles? Yeah, all kinds of interesting insects and reptiles. One outfit ran into a tiger, which was a tremendous surprise mm-hmm. because it's not supposed to be down there, but evidently one lost his way. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. But yeah. You know, mainly it was uh, snakes and bugs and uh, sometimes very interesting lizards. Mm-hmm. Uh, the walking stick. We, and Oh, yeah. We, uh, we once, well, we were going through a uh, piece of jungle under total sound discipline. You weren't allowed to say anything. It was hand signals uh, to communicate. Mm-hmm. And I got this signal back with your, a padding motion, which is basically sit down and don't make any noise. Mm-hmm. And I did, and everybody in front of me was doing the same thing. And the whole jungle, after about five minutes, the whole jungle was suddenly alive with walking sticks. Oh. You know, the little praying mantis type creatures. Yeah. I mean, there were hundreds of them, and we hadn't even known they were there. But once we were all silent and still, they just went about their business they started walking around and there must have been dozens of them just within easy sight of where i was mm-hmm. and uh it was it was remarkable some were like oh eight or ten inches long oh wow and i asked um you know having read the forever war i'm, I'm just trying to imagine what some of the elements in that that might be connected to your you know specific incidents during your time in vietnam yeah. And I'm curious about the animals because the aliens, I don't want to give it too much away, obviously, for readers who haven't read it. Um, but did anything there you encounter give you an idea of the aliens that you wanted? I'm just thinking about, you know, sort of the, the, the way they were, you know, well, or, or, I don't think, I don't think actually I used much, uh, out of Vietnam as an analogy for the creatures that we ran into. Mm-hmm. In the Forever War, I, I was more reaching back into my science fiction background and, mm-hmm. you know, books and movies and everything. It's just 
it's not hard to make up creatures. Mm-hmm. True, true. Um, how about the camaraderie? You know, obviously, Forever War, there, a lot of it is about how the people get along with each other, you know, their interactions and, you know, their bonding and, and maybe conflicts. Um, does that represent some of your experiences in war? Yeah, it did. I was, uh, in fact, I was very gratified. I'm not a tremendously sociable person by nature, and uh, uh, when I dropped was dropped into a engineer's company, nobody else had a college education. Everybody else was just drafted out of uh, jobs or high school. Mm-hmm. And, well, most people just graduated from high school and got swept up. I graduated from college and then was drafted. Hmm. But, uh, you know, I... I was surprised to find out how much we had in common. Mm-hmm. Sit around and talk, because all the people I knew socially, we'd sit around and talk about books we'd read. Mm-hmm. And these guys didn't read books. And basically, uh, you know, I guess we talked about science, about uh, television that we saw, mm-hmm. and occasionally movies, girls. Oh, of course, we talk about <laughs> girls. <laughs> mm-hmm. Uh, not too frankly about girls because most of the other guys were not married and uh, and they were kids you know they I was a lot older than most of them I turned 25 in the jungle mm-hmm. and most of them were 20 or younger mm-hmm. so uh, yeah it was uh, there was a big gap uh, <laughs> in experience and age mm-hmm now, um, obviously, the Forever War is, um, you know, touted as, as sort of the first military sci-fi. However, I think it also is very, it seems to me, just looking back, it's very uh, progressive as far as ideas on uh, future sexuality. Um, and yeah, again, <laughs> which... Yeah, it was different. I didn't set out to do that, but that's the way the novel grew. Mm-hmm. Oh, as you were writing, it just seemed like a natural thing to happen, to progress? Yeah. I mean, I was writing about the people I knew, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, I don't know. I, I guess I knew gay people. In fact, there, were a, there was a gay couple uh, in our group, uh, mm-hmm. two medics mm-hmm. who traveled with us, and they shared a tent and, and were obviously lovers. Mm-hmm. And since they were medics, nobody said anything about it. Hey, that's cool. You guys carry on, carry on. (laughs) (laughs) That's interesting. Um, So as you, you know, because the the novel covers a huge swath of future uh, time, how difficult was it to sort of come up with plausible future scenarios of how culture and technology was at each step? Oh, that's so natural. You know, it's just, if that were hard for you to write, you wouldn't be a science fiction writer, would you? Mm-hmm. Okay. It's, it's in the game. Now, do you plot it out, or or do you do you sit and, and plan, like, okay, each one is going to be at this level, or as you wrote it, it just came to you? I think it's basically what came to me while I was writing. I mean, I was thinking about what happened in Vietnam, Mm-hmm. Uh, but you know it's just most of the times when I write I'm just 
typing along or scratching along with a fountain pen and just put people into trouble and see what happens. Mm-hmm. And usually if they're not in enough trouble, something can come around the corner and put them into more trouble. Right. Yeah. Just another way of writing. Mm-hmm. Did you enjoy writing the novel, or was it more a cathartic experience? Oh, I enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't even call it cathartic, although in retrospect, I suppose it was. Mm-hmm. I was just writing what I knew. I mean, I thought, hey, you know, I had read Starship Troopers, and I had read other science fiction war novels. Mm-hmm. But I thought, you know, none of those seem to be written by anybody who had ever been in a war. Mm-hmm. So I've been in a war. I will write one that... Uh, <laughs> It reflects that. Now, when you uh, when you finished your tour in Vietnam, did you just thinking again about what I read in Forever War? Did you feel a uh, how, how much relief did you feel? What were your feelings then when it was done? No, I was so glad. It was like uh, it was a new life beginning for for me, and you know, for almost anybody. Mm-hmm. I didn't plan to think at all about soldiering. I actually was in the army for another two, three months after I got back from Vietnam because I was in for two years. Mm-hmm. But it was basically, you know, by that time I knew it would be three or four months in the army and then pull the ripcord. I'm, I'm a civilian again. Mm-hmm. Were you, you were wounded in your time in Vietnam, correct? Yeah. Uh, that wasn't unusual. <laughs> yeah, I was, you know, most of us got a little bit here and there. Mm-hmm. So I was wounded. I was I was seriously wounded. Yeah. So did that wound end your tour? Or did you continue on? This is a strange thing because evidently it was a clerical error. I was badly wounded and wound up in a series of hospitals, mm-hmm. and my paperwork got screwed up between one hospital and another, as I found out uh, much later. And I wound up in a uh, convalescent center. When I could hardly walk, mm-hmm. I was going around on crutches, and my job included doing a lap every morning, doing like a mile and a half lap every morning. I said, but wait, I can't even walk. Mm-hmm. I said, well, do what you can. And I said, okay, what I'll do is I'll get in my crutches and try to follow you. Mm-hmm. That's what I did. And then, you know, it was uh, it was a typical uh, rear area in a combat zone thing. There was not a lot of efficiency anywhere. Mm-hmm. And I did, you know, I was not a good soldier. I, a person who had adapted well to the Army would have taken advantage of that and said, oh, oh all right, I mean, I'll just carve myself out a, an easy place here. Mm-hmm. But I, you know, I didn't, I was just sort of a reluctant, uh, sullen kind of victim. I, I was a civilian who was forced into uniform and was not going to cooperate but I wasn't going to be a mutant mutineer either mm-hmm. you know I wound up in Vietnam I wound up in charge of a game room at the hospital and I was uh, checking out games for the various uh, patients and I set up the, the library which was not a big deal I mean I'd been a librarian in graduate school and mm-hmm. so here I, I had to organize about a thousand paperback books and said, oh, how about alphabetical? Hey, now there's a great idea. Why don't we do that? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So the hospitals and 
that the final hospital you went to where that where were they located? In Vietnam, in uh, in South Vietnam, at uh, Cameron. I was in Cameron Bay, mm-hmm. uh, which was a base about the size of Philadelphia. It was just a huge place, and uh, so I was down there, and we just sit around and do our various things. As I say, I handed out games to people, uh, board games and things like that. Mm-hmm. And this was before there were a lot of computers anywhere. Mm-hmm. So, pardon me, dear? Any? Yeah. Yeah, we had computers at the uh, combat level, but they were big, you know, huge electronic boxes that uh, some generals and majors uh, did war games with. Mm. No, we, uh, we kind of... Uh, we had a library that was, uh, when I got to my final destination in Cameron Bay, it was a library about the size of a small high school library. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I could sit there and read, and uh, I was basically working only about 12 hours a day. Mm-hmm. And uh, the nighttime, I could go down to the uh, EM, Enlisted Men's Club and drink beer and you know, just hang around. They uh, they had guitars, and I'd been playing guitar for several years. Mm-hmm. Well, I set up, I started teaching guitar to some of the officers, and uh, that gave me a few privileges. And mm-hmm. so, made I made some friends, and we had a pretty good time. I, the base got attacked maybe about once a month, mm-hmm. but not seriously. I mean, uh, to me. <laughs> I'd been in some pretty hairy combat, and this was a few mortars and, you know, rockets coming, and every night, and you just go into a bunker and mm-hmm. smoke the joint. It was not a big deal. <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, what what, what uh, time period did you serve? What was the date range? Well, I was there uh, from February 68 to February 69. Mm. What, what areas did you operate in before you were wounded? Mostly, I was uh, in the Central Highlands around Pleiku, mm. basically the uh, the jungles around Pleiku, Banmeituit, uh, Kontum, mm-hmm. and Pleijaran. How, how did they move you around? Were you basically in trucks? or? No, no, I was a helicopter guy. I, uh, we basically, well, sometimes we did move in trucks when they decided that we had to move our whole base of operations, which happened three times, I guess. Mm -hmm. And then they put everything in dues and a half trucks and uh, go rumbling off, you know, (laughs) 50 miles down the road and set everything up again. Mm -hmm. But basically we were air mobile, so-called, which really meant we're just in helicopters and we'd go into uh, various uh, combat areas and, we would take care of the booby traps and mm. uh, that sort of thing, and, and basically basic engineering work. Yeah. And then when we were no longer needed there, they'd take us someplace else. Mm-hmm. Did you like flying? Oh, did I like to fly? Yeah, in the helicopters, was it fun? Yeah, uh, it was fun. I like I like helicopters, but it wasn't fun being shot at in a helicopter. I mean, that really really sucked. Yeah, as uh, you know. <laughs> You watch one helicopter go down, and you know it's a very, very dangerous way to get about. And we got hit a few times in helicopters, but just individual rounds would 
go through our uh, sheet metal. Mm-hmm. That was scary enough, but nobody ever got killed mm-hmm. while we were going from one place to another. Mm-hmm. And the booby traps, I imagine, I, I've read some pretty nasty booby traps in Vietnam. Um, oh, yeah. Can't, well, I can't imagine one that's not nasty, but right. yeah, people would step on uh, punji steaks mm-hmm. and have a, uh, you know, smeared with human feces and you have one that goes through all the metatarsals in your foot and out the other side. Mm-hmm. Very serious infection. I mean, people could lose a foot before they uh, had time to get any kind of uh, treatment. Mm. Wow. And you guys had to clear those out. Well, try to. I mean, basically, if you see one, you just mark it. Uh, and if there's a big red flag sitting there, everybody knows, <laughs> don't step here. Uh, it's a really bad idea. Huh. Wow. So, um, you know, obviously in, in the book and um, the comic book, I, I um, you know, the, the deaths and injuries, and, and I'm not giving anything away that in a military sci-fi, some characters are killed or, and wounded. It seems very... Uh, um, realistic, you know, much more in a way that other other authors haven't done. So I'm curious. I mean, first, do you mind um, sharing about your own injury? Is that too no, personal? No, uh, my my injury was not that dramatic. I mean, uh, well, the effects were pretty dramatic. It almost blew my leg off. Hmm. Uh, it was a uh, booby trap that. Uh, went off while we were doing other stuff. I, uh, I see, I was just standing there actually, basically. And it was a huge explosion. And, uh, it wasn't just one, you know, like a manufactured booby trap. It was a whole bunch of stuff that went off all at once. Mm-hmm. And they picked pieces of bullets and shrapnel and this and that out of me. And they were, they were very, very good. I mean, and by the time I came along, they had, they had processed so many soldiers with so many really dramatic wounds. Mm-hmm. You know, they just kind of said, okay, here's another one. And they they went through, and I was in surgery, I think, four times in the first couple of days, mm-hmm. in and out. Different surgical teams with different specialties, I suppose. Mm-hmm. And then uh, I was moved to a... Uh, I went to a couple of hospitals mm-hmm. where various specialties were being uh, exercised. And then I wound up at Cameron Bay, uh, which, as I said, was a pretty civilized joint. Mm-hmm. And that's where I should have gone straight to Fort Belvoir, mm-hmm. I found out eventually. But my papers got mixed up and lost. And for some reason, I stayed there and got my job in the game room. <laughs> Hmm. So, yeah, I I know much more about games than I would have otherwise. <laughs> what, what games were popular at that time? Well, we were just passing out Monopoly type board games and mm-hmm. and whatever we we had. You know, a lot of people played Sorry mm-hmm. uh, and uh, as I say, Monopoly and and Parcheesi and the usual kind of uh, kid games, uh, teenage games. Mm-hmm. Uh, we didn't have anything sophisticated. This was. 1968. I mean, they didn't have any uh, big computer stuff. Mm-hmm. And and how about the uh, guitar song? What were your favorites to play and teach at that time? Oh, we played uh, war protest songs, basically. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was a big deal. Uh, 
and uh, everybody knew them, so people could sing along to the you know, the Brothers Four and Peter Paul Mary and mm-hmm. and that uh, gang. Mm-hmm. So that was <laughs> our repertoire was fairly limited, but uh, that was basically our universe of discourse there. Mm-hmm. Now, did you um, did you see guys directly injured and killed, like close to you, or? Yeah, close enough to get their blood on me. Yeah. I mean, too close. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, yeah, I was, uh, in a, I, I was in a certain amount of action, but I, you know, I should uh, count them up. I guess it was fewer than a dozen actual battles I was in. But then what do you call it when a mortar comes out of nowhere and explodes next to you? Yeah. And, even if nothing else happens that week, mm-hmm. that's kind of a nervous situation. Yeah. Because often this is what would happen, and sometimes a single bullet. We found out, ultimately, that, uh, you know, we're being attacked by amateurs. These are guys who are farmers, uh, basically, or small businessmen or whatever, the Viet Cong, and they get their orders and they have to fit them into whatever is left of normal life. Mm-hmm. And so you say, this guy's a hardware store guy, and he's got to go attack an American line of, uh, of soldiers going through the suburbs of his town. Mm-hmm. So they give him a weapon and orders, and he goes down to where the Americans are and shoots one round and gets the hell out of there. Mm-hmm. That often happened. Yeah. And you blame him. I mean, that's what his orders were to fire on the Americans and go back home. <laughs> that's what he did. Mm-hmm. That happened to us several times, uh, you know, just one round. And sometimes, one time it was a one round against a convoy where we, we had tanks. Mm-hmm. We had 200 soldiers. And we had machine guns and bazookas and every goddamn thing in the world. Mm-hmm. Well, one round came out of the jungle and bounced off a tank. So we had to jump out of our own vehicles and go out into the jungle and look around for targets of opportunity, as they say. Mm-hmm. And never found one because, of course, that guy had gone back to town and opened up his hardware store and said, who me? <laughs> <laughs> wow. So you had to do patrol, too, in those cases. Oh, yeah, yeah. In yeah. fact, that was, that was all right. Yeah, patrols... Well, it was nervous enough, but we rarely got pitched battles while we were out on patrol. I think maybe a half a dozen times we wound up digging in and fighting. Mm-hmm. It's usually, you know, if they they come upon a group of, say, a, 150 American soldiers armed to the teeth, what are they going to do? Yeah. They, Call for reinforcements, or call in the. Why don't we call in a bunch of fighter jets? <laughs> they they mm. couldn't do that, right? So basically, they would do a token response and get the hell out of there. Mm. Did you ever see napalm used? Ours, not theirs. Right, right. We used napalm when we could. Mm-hmm. Uh, unfortunately, sometimes it came pretty close to us. Mm-hmm. But I can only remember one time I ever saw the enemy uh, any. Bodies that were burned by napalm, mm-hmm. which is pretty horrible to see. Yeah. But uh, but in fact, the person who dies that way probably didn't even know why he died. It just happened instantly. Mm. 
And I can imagine the smells in that environment were pretty oh, strong. Oh, yeah. You may not want to eat roast pork for a while. Yeah. But as far as just the day-to-day, did it? Did Vietnam just smell different? Did it? Well, yeah. It smelled like a jungle. Mm-hmm. Uh, to me, it's rather pleasant. Because mm-hmm. uh, I'm a Floridian. I'm... Yeah. Don't I don't respond to I don't respond negatively to jungle smells. Mm-hmm. It's uh, it's my environment. Okay, what what part of Florida? Well, we live in Gainesville, which is <laughs> pretty far from any jungles. Mm-hmm. It's uh, it's not even rainforest. It's uh, I look outside my my window here. I I have a Florida ceiling window mm-hmm. here, and uh, it's as green as Vietnam. Actually, it's uh, <laughs> full of. Uh, very <laughs> fairly well tended plants that uh, grow all over the place which I like mm-hmm. I don't like to do gardening so I've cho- <laughs> chosen my my atrium to look like a jungle but that's because jungles take care of themselves don't they <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> so now when when you and again this relates to stuff I've read in the book because I've I'm seeing a lot of similarities that, you know um when you were wounded, were you married or? Oh yeah, yeah, I'd been married a couple of years. So, were you worried? Were you scared about having to tell your family about, hey, I was wounded. It's not bad. Don't worry. You know, how, how did that play out? Well, in fact, what I I told the guy in charge, my next, the guy who was in in command of my platoon, mm-hmm. I said, don't send a telegram. Don't tell anybody that I'm wounded. Because that's the thing I didn't want, was for my family to get this telegram. And so <clears throat> they didn't send the telegram. I, I sat down when I was out of the uh, emergency surgery. Mm-hmm. sat down, I wrote an eight-page letter uh, with a fountain pen and uh, sent that off to my wife. And then I wrote a long letter to my brother and sent that off. Mm-hmm. And I waited for a response. Uh, basically, my brother got his first. And he was wise enough not to get in touch with my wife mm-hmm. and, you know, scare her unnecessarily. Mm-hmm. Because uh, by the time I got around to writing them, I'd been through a couple of surgeries already. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, I knew I was going to live, and I knew I was probably going to keep the leg that was badly injured. Mm-hmm. But uh, the first time, they, the first surgery, they thought I might lose the leg. Mm. That alarmed me a lot. Yeah. But, you know, by the time I got around to the second surgery, I thought, well, at least if I'm one-legged, the Army's going to get rid of me. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm not going back into the jungle. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That was my... Sort of morose, uh, <laughs> <region>. <laughs> yeah. Um, is so in your not just this novel, but all your other writings, is there are there military elements that you put in that you feel that people aren't um, noticing or paying attention to enough, or are there any messages or elements that you want people to take more notice of? No, I haven't uh, actually. I don't have anything to complain about that. You know, you write a novel, you don't expect everybody to get a single message from it. Mm-hmm. And uh, some people, I, what, what annoys me sometimes is 
people would get this, we'll get a pro-war uh, message from books like The Forever War and say, God, you know, that was really great. You really saw some action. Mm-hmm. And this and that. I'm going, didn't you read, did you read the same book I wrote? <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it's, it's there. I mean, a book is kind of like a, a palimpsest. It's like a, uh, it's a, uh, a diff- it's a complicated message that people read in their own way. And they read their own story out of it. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, I have had fan letters from soldiers who said, yeah, you know, I went through the same thing, and I'm so glad that I could uh, uh, do that for my country and everything. And <laughs> Whereas the River War is kind of like, wait, the country took me prisoner and put me into a situation where I had to murder people for a living. Yeah. Not really great. Yeah. That's interesting. I hadn't thought about it that way, um, but it certainly... Yeah, it certainly fits. That's pretty uh, pretty intense. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, you know, what I didn't, what I never would have expected was the close friends that I met in combat, the people, as I say, I had nothing in common with. But after one day of combat, you've got a lot of in common with the people around you. Mm-hmm. And nothing had prepared me for that. Although since uh, since then I've read books that uh, <clears throat> that would prepare me for it, hmm. that kind of camaraderie. So when you were when you actually left, um, did you have any? And again, I'm I'm thinking about the novel. Was there um in your experiences? Was there any pullback? Like, did you ever look back and say, you know what? There's some stuff I missed that that I'd like to have back. Uh. You know, I can't remember feeling that. Mm. I may have at one time. Mm. But, you know, it's been a long time now. I uh, I guess I, like anyone, I remember being young and strong. Mm. And I sort of miss that, being 75, <laughs> not too, <laughs> a little weak and old now. <laughs> mm. I remember being young and strong. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, basically... You never thought about that when you were young and strong. You're just kind of going, oh, okay, another day, another dollar. Mm-hmm. And so when, what was the first thing you did, um, well, work-wise, after you got out? Where, where where did you head? Well, I went back to school. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's see, I, uh, my wife and I went to Mexico. Mm-hmm. And uh, theoretically, as students... But actually just sort of vacationing and taking language lessons and this and that. Mm-hmm. And enjoying the hell out of Mexico. Mm-hmm. And the, the Mexican people were wonderful. And gay, my wife had a real aptitude for languages and had studied uh, Spanish in college. Mm-hmm. But she got a lot more out of it than I did in that regard. Mm-hmm. But I really enjoyed being in a foreign country where people weren't shooting at me, you know. <laughs> <laughs> And Mexico is a beautiful, wonderful place. We were down on the beaches and uh, just a real vacation spot. Mm-hmm. Did any elements of that experience end up in any of your writings? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I put uh, Mexico and and and, uh, and planets look oddly like Mexico <laughs> <laughs> in my novel. 
Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, I had a, uh, <laughs> one of my, uh, I had, <laughs> before I even went there, I had a, uh, a character named Hugo de Naranja, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> which is Spanish for orange, orange juice. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so as, as you kept writing, however you define it, what do you consider your first big writing success? You know, my first big writing success was the first short story I sold. Mm-hmm. And that was small change by anybody's standards. It's $165. Mm-hmm. But then again, our rent was $100 a month. Yeah. And uh, so it was not insignificant. And it was the beginning of a career for me. Mm-hmm. And then I sold a novel, and uh, I only got $1,500 for that. Mm-hmm. But again, when you're living in an apartment for $100 a month, that's 15 months rent right there. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it just seemed like a lot of money. I, what happened when I got my check, I I went down to the bank and I got $100 bills and and I tied them to a little Christmas tree we had. Uh, <laughs> it was December, you know, and so I just, I tied them all around the branches of this little uh, feather Christmas tree and for when Gay came home from uh, work. Huh. Ta-da! <laughs> Here we are. Millionaires. It's <laughs> pretty I cool. Can, yeah. You can still remember it? Oh, I, yeah. st- I can still see that Christmas tree. It was such a shock and surprise. <laughs> I see that tree full of money. Yeah. <laughs> so, did your success change how you approached writing, or did it solidify like some ideas you had about how to succeed as a writer? Well, what it did was uh, remove the uncertainty. Okay. You know, I I know from friends who were in my situation who didn't have my every success. Mm-hmm. A lot of a young writer's life is about uncertainty and about, oh, my God, what are we going to do next? Am I going to have to get another job and so forth? Well, I never had that. You know, I just wrote and made a living. Mm-hmm. Uh, Gay was working... Uh, fairly constantly for the first year or so. Mm-hmm. We made a deal. Yeah, that's right, we did. Hmm. Yeah, but, uh, I would, uh, she would work for two what, years. Two years. Mm-hmm. If at the end of two years uh, I wasn't making enough from uh, writing, then uh, I would go out and get a job. Mm-hmm. But in fact, after two years I was yeah. uh, keep making a living. And I still am, oddly enough. Hmm. Is there something special about the way you go about writing or plotting your your stories? Um, something unique to you? Well, mm, I don't. I don't think so. I mean, I. I should say nowadays I don't have to have the regular output I had to have when I was new at the job. Mm-hmm. In those days, I had to, uh, you know, show up for work every morning, and I've always worked early, early. So I just, I used to work, oh, at least eight hours a day, mm-hmm. turning out writing. Mm. And uh, most of the time, well, I've lived in Florida most of that time, mm-hmm. Florida and Iowa. And basically I would uh, 
get on a bicycle and just go sit someplace and write. I'm, down here, I can go down to the library and work. But I can stay at home and work, too. I, I don't know. I've, uh, I kind of integrate exercise into my work day. Mm-hmm. Still do, actually. And, you know, when you're old, it's a good idea to have a routine that includes exercise. Mm-hmm. So it's it's kind of funny to think, well, I went out this morning and I bicycled around for a, you know, a few miles. Mm-hmm. It, was, it was wonderful. It got all the way up to 77 degrees, which is pretty cool for uh, Florida. Yeah. Right now. It's a good yeah, time. I, yeah. yeah. It's a good temperature for uh, getting outside, I think, and doing any kind of exercise. Yeah, yeah. 70s. And it never gets cold here, so. Yeah. So what aspect of writing do you enjoy the most? I just like writing. I mean, I like turning out copy, and uh, I like writing a page. And when I've written a couple of pages in a day, I think I've done my job, and it feels good. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's uh, I get a special kick out of finishing a book. Who wouldn't? I mean, it's several, sometimes several years work, and there it is finally. Mm-hmm. But I write uh, in longhand, and so my the sequence of pages as I write them is a pretty constant reminder that I have been working and I have created something. Mm-hmm. Do you use legal pads or regular size paper? What do you like? I use bound books, bound blank books. Mm -hmm. So I've got a whole bunch of uh, books with uh, stories written in them. Mm -hmm. I don't know when I started that. I guess in the 70s. I know I've got uh, complete book manuscripts that go back to 83. Wow. And pencil or pen? Fountain pen. Pen? Almost always pen. No, I don't like pencil work. Uh, I've never understood why people do, but, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I, I guess, and some people think I'm crazy because I use a fountain pen because you can't erase it, you know. Right. But uh, I don't pretend to do, I don't have to do final copy, but uh, it actually winds up being final copy. I write slowly. Mm-hmm. And I tend not to go back and change it. Hmm. Interesting. Do you ever use an audio recorder to, to record, say, segments or whatever? I've tried that. It never has worked well for me. Mm-hmm. That would be wonderful, wouldn't it? It's like not working at all. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, Well, I think the technology is getting to where you could just recite your, your novel out. and, and Oh, yeah. It, like uh, Dragon, whatever it is that uh, that software that does, I've tried that and it's kind of hilarious. It doesn't work for me, but I I wind up uh, laughing and my you know the the poor machine tries to <laughs> interpret my laughter and uh-huh. and that can be even funnier. So <laughs> yeah, um, it thinks that you're just mocking it at that point. Maybe right. <laughs> make fun of me, eh? <laughs> Um, so I, I met you and your wife at, I think, Escape Velocity 2016, so are, are you a regular convention attendee or guest? Well, we have been. Mm-hmm. Uh, when we were younger, we went, uh, 
co- conventions all the time. But now, actually, we go to several a year. Mm-hmm. And, uh, well, it's a social occasion. Like, we're going out to ICON mm-hmm. in a couple of days. In Iowa City. In Iowa City. Mm-hmm. The Rapids, right? Yeah. And uh, that's, that's an annual thing we always go to. Because we helped to start it. Yeah. Oh, okay. Only, only 43 years ago. <laughs> 43 years ago, yeah. Huh. How many of you started it? How, what was the group size? Uh, it was a class. I guess it was my science fiction writing class at the University of Iowa. Mm-hmm. So it's about 25 kids. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> half of them are still in the science fiction club there. You know, not kids anymore. Mm-hmm. Some of the grandchildren are there. Mm-hmm. And you said that was what year? Uh, that would have been what? 75. Yeah. You know, it's it. I just came across um, an old uh, comic convention uh, book from, I think, 73 or 78, where they have, you know how they have cosplaying now? Yeah. Uh, yeah. But they they had they had people in costume but they called it co- they call them costumers or costuming. Yeah, um, right. Did, yeah, did, cosplay as a word didn't come around for a while. Did you have that in in your first convention or Yeah. I guess there uh, was Yeah. Yeah, they had some costumes. Mhm. Now, how did um how does attending conventions, does that affect your writing? Does interacting with the public change anything about your writing or, or stories? Maybe. I don't, I'm not sure. I, uh, it has made me, uh, science fiction has made me into a public spe- speaker. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I, uh, I don't, when I was a kid, I could not get up in front of a class and talk. Mm-hmm. But years of, uh, Conventions have turned me into a glib, loud, loud mouse. <laughs> <laughs> You've been set free, huh? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, did you? Did publishers ever uh, or editors say, "Hey, this is the latest trend. Why don't you write on this subject or that subject?" Do you ever deal with that? Not very often. I, uh, I my agent told me that I should write some horror. Mm-hmm. And so I wrote a horror story. And I don't know, editors make suggestions, and I am not, you know, I'm not a fool. If somebody wants to pay me for doing something, <laughs> I'll <try to> do it. <laughs> mm-hmm. But no, by and large, it's, I just go whatever way I want to go. Mm-hmm. So that begs the question Was there ever a project you didn't want to do, but they said, here's X amount of money, and you said, okay, I'll do it? Yes. Yeah, oh yeah, I've done that. I mean, almost anybody who's a commercial writer has had that experience. Mm-hmm. But you don't want to mention which, which works it was? Oh, I don't mind. Uh, Atar the Merman. I wrote two novels in that series. Mm-hmm. Strictly for money, and the guy had this harebrained idea. You know, it's just, he's a spy. He can breathe underwater and talk to the fishes. And this and that. I said, hey, if you could talk to a fish... What would you say? <laughs> There's no fishes telling all this stuff about underwater stuff. Yeah. No, fish are really fucking dumb. <laughs> what are you going to say? So, no, you don't understand. They have spiritual. No, no, they don't. <laughs> so, sometimes you have a little trouble with it. Yeah. Well, as, a, as a 
species. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's funny. But, yeah, I've I've done commercial things and I've done things that were very successful. Mm-hmm. Uh, once Ben Bova showed me a a picture and he says uh, it's uh, the but America's bicentennial mm-hmm. uh, in 1976, and he says we want to do a we got a a cover painting that is called tricentennial, and we want somebody to write a story around it. Mm-hmm. And so he said, I, I can do it. Yeah, send it to me. And so he sent me a Xerox of it, and uh, <laughs> well, when I got the picture, I saw it was a it was a spaceship orbiting a, an alien planet, mm-hmm. and it had a hole in the side of it. And my little actual, you know, astronomical person <laughs> says, you know, a spaceship with a big hole in it is full of dead people. <laughs> what you want? <laughs> but no, that's... You know, your story's over right there. So I thought, no. So I had to figure out a way to put a hole in a spaceship without killing all the characters. Mm-hmm. And then the background star group said it like, uh, I don't, I forget, 800 light years from Earth. Mm-hmm. And so I had to get that into the story and this and that and the other thing. So I wound up just juggling all these various uh, technological points. Mm-hmm. And I wound up writing a story. Well, the story's called Tricentennial, one that Hugo and mm. uh, it was very successful. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but it was it was basically I don't know. Like, had, did you ever play that game? Uh, Telephone, where you uh, have various colored discs on the floor, mm-hmm. and people who are in the game, you have to put one foot oh, on yeah. the. And the next foot on the next red thing, and Twisted. you wind up Twisted. yeah, Twister it's called, <laughs> and that's what that story was like. <laughs> well, I, I guess you won Twister then if you got the Hugo for it. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, so, so considering that you do write a lot of what you want to write, um. Yeah. What role does the author have in society? What you know? What what is your writing for? Money. Money. <laughs> I'm uh, yes. It's what I, I'm not a mercenary person, but it is what I do for a living, mm-hmm. and I'm not a fool about it. Mm-hmm. I won't write something that I know is not going to make any money. I mean, that would be silly. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, I don't go sniffing around finding things that will pay. Mm-hmm. I, it seems to me that if you write well, you you get paid for it. Mm-hmm. In the old days, uh, the uh, atmosphere was rather different, and uh, a lot of magazines filled their pages with stories that were, you know, more or less to order. I, I did stories for John W. Campbell, for instance, that were problem stories that uh, you know he said, "What would happen if?" Uh, uh, well, I'm not one of the I'm not one of the Campbell's stable. Mm-hmm. He would uh, say, "What would uh, if you came across aliens who could eat human flesh, but uh, but couldn't kill people, mm-hmm. and yet they really wanted to eat human flesh, so they would do complicated surgery to isolate arms and legs and things like that." Mm-hmm. <laughs> 
write up a, write me a story about that. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> I never did, but <laughs> that would be something that probably John W. Campbell wouldn't think of. <laughs> it's just too gross. <laughs> oh. So, um, sorry, you just I, I had a question and you just your joke <laughs> you kind of threw me. Um, so, what authors who you haven't met? who you aren't friends with, are there authors out there that uh, you find particularly interesting or inspiring? Hmm. Good ones, yeah. I mean, <laughs> not much you can do about meeting them. Uh, no, it's, uh, you know, we're a very social group, mm-hmm. science fantasy writers, and I meet lots of people I like. Mm-hmm. And... Yet, you know, a lot of the people whom I like, I don't much, I don't especially care for their writing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm trying to think, I've, I don't think I've ever met a writer who I didn't like whose stories I loved. I mean, that would be odd. Mm-hmm. But uh, <laughs> I, I just finished reading this, uh, this wonderful story. It's little, uh, I got this book called uh, Psychos. Mm-hmm. Uh, by John Skip and here's a uh, Neil Gaiman story mm-hmm. called Feminine Endings and I was really taken by that so I've sketched out a thing that I can write in response to it mm. and send it off to Neil say thanks Neil <laughs> do you consider yourself a picky reader I'm not so picky but I get <laughs> I get bored easily Mm-hmm. Because I got a house full of books I haven't read, mm-hmm. and I don't have to stick with the book if it doesn't grab me. Mm-hmm. Now, as a sci-fi writer, what in science inspires you? Oh, I love reading about uh, uh, other solar systems and the the physical situations of uh, new planets. Mm-hmm. Yeah, basically, I think they're serving me up uh, new settings for stories. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe Mexico on Pluto or Charon or something. Yeah, right. <laughs> oh, the tamales on Pluto are frozen. I've got to say, you know. <laughs> oh, no. yeah. Um, do you do you have a, a telescope? Do you do any sort of astronomy? Yeah, yeah. I've got a whole house full of telescopes. Mm-hmm. So I, you know, I do. Uh, I mostly the sky is pretty lousy here. Mm-hmm. But I enjoy going uh, through the solar system and, you know, watching, looking at deep sky things. Uh, usually, I have to go dozens of miles away to get a dark sky. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, within sci-fi and fantasy, are there, apart from books, are there movies, music, or other creative media that uh, that you particularly like? Well, I love, as a consumer, I love uh, science fiction movies, horror movies. Mm-hmm. Fantasy movies. I just uh, I love movies in my ever since childhood. Mm-hmm. I've preferred uh, fantastic uh, themes and settings. Mm-hmm. I like I like you know mainstream movies. I like serious movies and such, mm-hmm. but they don't get me the way that uh, some you know, give me some monsters, corpses, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> Did you? Uh and this movie is just comes into mind because it's so odd and some some of my friends have joked about it do you remember Zardoz with Sean Connery yeah yeah, yeah I remember Zardoz 
That is a crazy yeah, well, one. I was, I was a writer by then when Zardoz came out, oh, yeah. so I, I could look at it professionally and say, oh boy, I'm glad I wasn't working on that one. <laughs> <laughs> so, now have, I'm not sure if, if any of your work's been turned into um, film or TV. Some TV, but, uh, you know, nothing, you know, some Twilight Zone type, type stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Unsure Twilight Zone yeah. episode. Oh yeah. wow! Um, what do you? How did having your writing appear on screen? How did that feel? Did it? Did it do it justice? Or sure, yeah, they did fine. Yeah, I had fun uh, <laughs> while I was teaching at MIT. Mm-hmm. One of my stories was adapted that one. for the Twilight Zone, mm-hmm. and we all went down to the student union and drank beer and watched it <laughs> it's great fun mm-hmm. okay um is there a superpower or advanced technology um you wanted when you were a kid and what was hey. it time travel certainly oh yeah uh, you know advanced technology well i wanted to go to the stars mm-hmm. but i would have settled for mars or venus or jupiter you know mm-hmm. uh, yeah that was pretty, uh, it seems so <laughs> white bread now, pretty mm-hmm. mainstream. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Remember when I was a kid, though, uh, this is before the space program. Mm-hmm. And so uh, it was all pretty pie in the sky. And then I was lucky, lucky to be, what, I was 14 or so when they first started being serious about going to the moon. Mm-hmm. And that happened so fast, and it was uh, so successful. It was, we lived in a science fiction world then, mm-hmm. and whereas as opposed to living in a political satire world. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. Do you remember how you felt when uh, we landed on the moon? Oh, it was wonderful. In fact, though, <laughs> it was it was a funny thing. Uh, we were down in Mexico, <laughs> and. Uh, we had uh, gotten the word about when the moon landing was going to happen, mm-hmm. but they were wrong. I mean, the, uh, changed. they changed it, and the news didn't go instantaneously from Mexico, from America to Mexico. And in fact, we were down in a little uh, kind of jungly beach place called Barra de Navidad. Mm-hmm. And we had to go to Guadalajara to get television. So we drove up this mountain road and everything and and got to Guadalajara. And I let Gay off where we were staying with this Mexican family. But then I drove across town to drop another guy off. And while I was (laughs) driving him across town, we landed on the moon. (laughs) Yeah, I didn't have a The radio wasn't covering it or anything like that. Mm Mm-hmm. And uh, so I was just going on the, what I had heard, and I was off by hours. Hmm. So I, when I got the, when I, I pulled up the, what did they say here in, in Spanish? Uh, Están aterrizando en la luna. En la luna. And I thought, holy en la cow, luna here. here we are. And then, of course, they, then I saw the uh, replay of the, of the television of the moon landing and, and <laughs> It was interspersed with tequila commercials. It was wonderful mm-hmm. because you see Armstrong bouncing around on the moon, and then there's this uh, behind him saying, uh, 
Uh, let's see. Tequila it was, salsa. Tequila salsa is tequila mas fina. <laughs> <laughs> it's wonderful party voice in Mexican. <laughs> now, did you think they'd find anything strange on the moon? Did you have any uh, any theories or, or expectations? I was an astronomer. I thought, you know, wow, there's not going to be any air there. <laughs> <laughs> no, I I would have been surprised as anybody to find something mysterious mm-hmm. I'm, I was quite satisfied to find an airless world with lots of dust on it mm-hmm. <laughs> you know there was a thing when I was uh, in high school which would be a few years before this there was an actual theory that when we landed on the moon we would the spaceship would settle into a pile of dust like talcum powder that would be yards deep mm-hmm. <laughs> and they had these uh, on the Today Show with Dave Carraway, they had a, an animation of a spaceship going down tail first and they're just settling into the dust. <laughs> oh, no, no. <laughs> but it didn't happen that way, fortunately. Yeah, <laughs> definitely, fortunately. <laughs> um, so if you went to another planet, what, uh, apart from just admiring it, you know, what's the, the pull for you? What What is it you want out of that? I don't think I'd want to go to another planet now. I mean, hmm. uh, I'm content to watch what the instruments bring back. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wouldn't get a kick out of it. I love travel. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I, what I really love about travel is other cultures and other people. Mm-hmm. The natural wonders of the planet are are, are wonderful. It's mm-hmm. But uh, I've been around the block a few times. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, uh, oh boy, another arch. Mm-hmm. That reminds me of the last arch I saw. <laughs> I'll tune into RG Bunker. Thanks. <laughs> so, if you if we ever came across aliens, you'd want them to come visit Earth instead nope. of. Uh... Well, yeah, I don't think we have a good record with uh, <laughs> meeting aliens, even <laughs> if they just you know speak with a different accent. We're yeah. pretty hard on them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, you know, all those extra eyes and tentacles. Oh man, we just we wouldn't do well. Yeah, <laughs> yeah you're right. Unfortunately, yeah. um, what is there a, a book, a story idea that you haven't written yet that uh, you'd love to write that for whatever reason you haven't gotten to yet? Uh, you know, um, I do have a number of things that I'm scratching my head over and I haven't written them yet I've got a uh, in fact I have a cigar box that's labeled crazy ideas Hmm. and I have gotten I guess about three novels out of that bunch of little things and I about once a year I take them out and I look at them and I guess once a year or more I throw another idea in there Mm mm-hmm uh, but as I don't know as early as my 70th birthday I would say I've it's not that I'm less ambitious about writing books but I'm less interested in coming up with brand new ideas that nobody else has ever heard of hmm. I mean everything I do is going to be new or I wouldn't write it right uh and I don't know. Uh, I guess I haven't come up with anything that was 
like slow glass, you know, or uh, intergalactic empires. Well, I've written about intergalactic empires, or not intergalactic, but large <laughs> empires. Mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah, I I have ideas the way anybody does. Mm-hmm. And uh, it has occurred to me after a couple of dozen books that it's not so much your great new virgin idea that nobody's ever come up with, mm-hmm. but the way that you tell the story. Right. And, you know, I understand that there are other people writing science fiction war novels. And, in fact, I knew that there were science fiction war novels in 1898. <laughs> and so an idea doesn't have to be just crispy, fresh, and, you know, rip the, the plastic off it mm-hmm. and expose it to the consumers. I think uh, I've come to, I came to realize after a couple of books that what I have to sell is me mm-hmm. and my own unique uh, uh, attitudes. And the fact that they're unique doesn't mean that they're great because everybody's got this bundle of unique attitudes. Mm-hmm. To be a good writer, I think it's a combination of talents and and timing and this and that. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, I have different. I have I have books that nobody else could have written. Well, so does everybody walking down the street. Mm-hmm. And you have to have a certain combination of talents and experiences to make a living at it. Yeah. And I did have that, and I still have some of it. You know. Mm-hmm. I'm uh, I'm not ready to be counted out yet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, um, we're still, you know, we're still discussing your work, so definitely. Yeah. Well, this morning, I in the tub, I read this uh, Neil Gaiman story, Feminine Endings. Mm-hmm. Oh, I, I'm sorry. Yeah, I already get over, went over that, but I'm it's still bouncing around inside my head about how I'm going to steal that from Neil and mm-hmm. <laughs> make my own version of it. Turn it inside out, as one does. So you didn't mention before that you were in the tub when you were reading it, so that's new. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and that was, that's, that's an important detail, because that book weighs as much as an anvil. <laughs> I think, boy, I'm glad this is a short story, because I can't keep turning these pages for very long. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right, so uh, that's all the questions I have. Do you have any final uh, thoughts? Well, uh, nothing earth-shaking I just hope that everybody goes out and buys all of my books and uh, in fact in fact buys extra copies in case they lose one (laughs) (laughs) oh and that reminds me I want to ask so where where can people find your your works Um, and do you have social media or website or anything people can go to oh sure I mean I'm available on Google and I've uh, I've got a web uh, presence Mm mm-hmm but I don't. Uh, I don't pursue that with a lot of energy. I mm-hmm. I have correspondence, and and Gay goes through my correspondence and puts it up on Facebook. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't maintain a uh, give and take on Facebook myself. I just uh, sort of check it out and and write responses here and there. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, uh, thank you for speaking with me. Sure. Thank you for listening. Don't forget to visit chrisalvarez.com 
or theartofsciencefiction.com for more great interviews, photos, and articles. Your visits help support this podcast. Please remember that my first name, Chris, does not have an H in it. One of the best ways to provide feedback for this podcast is to rate me on iTunes. Please give me a good rating if you liked it, or feel free to give me a bad rating if you didn't. I'll use that feedback to make this a better podcast. You can also follow me on Instagram under Chris Alvarez Sci-Fi, on Facebook under Chris Alvarez WLC, on YouTube under Chris Alvarez WLC, and on Twitter under Chris Alvarez WLC. Thanks for listening and keep imagining the future.